Today I want to read from uh, Revelation chapter 2. Uh, I'm going to read the first seven verses of Revelation 2 uh, from the New Living Translation. Write this letter to the angel of the church in Ephesus. This is the message from the one who holds the seven stars in his right hand, the one who walks among the seven gold lampstands. I know all the things you do. I have seen your hard work and your patient endurance. I know you don't tolerate evil people. You've examined the claims of those who say they are apostles but are not. You have discovered they are liars. You have patiently suffered for me without quitting. But I have this complaint against you. You don't love me or each other as you did at first. Look how far you have fallen. Turn back to me and do the works you did at first. If you don't repent, I will come and remove your lampstand from its place among the churches. But this is in your favour. You hate the evil deeds of the Nicolaitans just as I do. Anyone with ears to hear must listen to the Spirit and understand what he is saying to the churches. To everyone who is victorious, I will give fruit from the tree of life in the paradise of God. Well, that's God's word for us today. Well, Revelation chapters 2 and 3 are without a doubt the most preached on part of the letter. Although they are often referred to themselves as the letters to the churches, they don't follow the normal pattern and form of letters in the Bible, but are much more like prophetic oracles of the Old Testament, especially those found in Ezekiel and Amos. Each message begins with a description of Jesus, followed by a message to a church, and each description of Jesus and each message is specifically tailored to the church to whom it is addressed. The churches in Smyrna and Philadelphia are unique in that they are not rebuked by Jesus, but along with all the other churches they are exhorted to persevere under trial with the promise of a reward to those who overcome. All the churches that addressed in these chapters were going through trials that varied slightly in form and in severity. Some of the trials were internal to the church, as in the case of the church in Ephesus, who had gotten themselves into a position where they loved the purity of their doctrine at the cost of their first love. The church in Smyrna was undergoing opposition from outside the church. And even though their situation was bad, Jesus told them that it was about to get worse. State persecution was about to intensify, some of them would be thrown in prison and some would be killed. In Pergamum, one of their members had already been killed for being a faithful witness of Jesus. And so to different degrees, all the churches were under pressure in some way, either from outside the church or from within or both with no end in sight and only dark clouds on the horizon. Now we've already noted that the cult of emperor worship was particularly strong in Asia Minor at this time and that Christians were being faced with a stark choice. They could worship Caesar or worship Christ. It's the choice that followers of Jesus always have to face day by day. 
To reinforce the point, the power and might of Rome were all pervasive. Everywhere you looked in these cities, there were statues and signs and buildings and garrisons of soldiers that all served to remind people that Rome ruled and that it ruled with an iron fist. So there is no doubt, given the pressures they were under, these congregations were worried and anxious about their future. They were in danger of losing their jobs, their businesses, their homes, their freedom to worship together. They were even in real danger of losing their lives if they remained faithful to their conviction that Jesus is Lord. Now I'm sure that all of these hard-pressed believers had lots of questions going through their minds, especially the most common question of all, the one that we all ask, why? Why is all this happening, Lord? Why aren't you doing anything about it, Lord? It is reasonable to assume, I think, that each church was having prayer meetings about their situation. For that's certainly the pattern we see in the book of Acts. Whenever there's a crisis, like when Peter got arrested, uh, the church gathered in someone's house to pray about it. Now, in Peter's case, an angel came and sprung him out of jail. But the situation of these churches remained unchanged and, in fact, was worsening. So I've no doubt they would have been asking God why he was allowing this to happen and why he seemed to be doing nothing about it. Just like the psalmist, they must have been saying, How long, O Lord? Or like the disciples in the boat on a storm-tossed sea, Lord, don't you care if we drown? It is possible that some had even begun to wonder if the might and power of Rome was too much for Jesus to deal with. Now, our situation today may not be exactly the same as that of these churches in the first century. We're not being faced with exactly the same circumstances that they were, but in a similar way, we too are under pressure as never before. Pressure to uh, worship someone or something other than Jesus in the consumerist, materialistic society that we are living in. Depression and anxiety, fear for the future, illness, bereavement, job insecurity, broken relationships, financial hardship are all widespread and at unprecedented levels in our society. And these things are no respecters of persons. And our society has become increasingly polarised and divided as a result. Christians today also have an increasing sense of being marginalised and mocked in society, both informally by citizens and formerly by the state. The Covid pandemic has magnified the impact of these anxieties so much that many people feel overwhelmed by things that we might otherwise have been able to cope with even a year ago. The normal rhythms of life have been torn apart. We feel socially and emotionally dislocated. Life doesn't quite fit anymore. It's no wonder that the numbers of people suffering mental health problems uh, have increased dramatically over the past year. Like these first century believers, we're all under different and varying kinds and intensities of pressure with no real end in sight and dark clouds on the horizon. It's not a cheery picture. And we might well be wondering, like they were, God, 
what's happening? Jesus, why aren't you doing anything? Why is this happening to us, Lord? We've been faithful. Well, Revelation is Jesus' pastoral response to these hard-pressed believers to encourage and equip them not only to bear what they were going through, but to overcome what they were going through. And in particular, these opening uh, chapters tell us two critically important things. Firstly, when we are feeling overwhelmed by the troubles that we face and the pressure that we are under, we need to know that Jesus is greater than all our troubles. I think that's why this pastoral letter does not begin with the messages to the churches, but rather it begins with a vision of Jesus. We need to be reminded again and again that he is the Almighty One, the eternal God enfleshed, the one who holds the stars in his right hand, the one who sustains all of creation. And so Revelation is seeking to redirect our gaze away from the things that are making us anxious and fearful and depressed and dislocated. For the more we focus on our problems, the larger they become and the more overwhelmed we feel. Revelation redirects our gaze to Jesus, the Almighty One. It's not a case, therefore, that we're just sticking our heads in the sand and pretending that everything is all right, because everything is not all right. Rather, what Revelation tells us is that the more that we focus on the almighty, glorious majesty of King Jesus, the more we begin to see everything else in its proper perspective. The vision of Jesus in chapter 1 highlights Jesus' eternal majesty, power and glory for this very reason. The troubles that we are going through are overwhelming at times, but they have not overwhelmed Jesus because he is the Almighty, gloriously powerful King, and he is our Good Shepherd who loves us and cares for us beyond measure. And because of that, our troubles cannot rob us of any of the things that he has promised us. And what promises they are. In John 10, Jesus says that those who follow him, to those who follow him, I give them eternal life and they shall never perish. No one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all. No one can snatch them out of my Father's hand. I and the Father are one. What a promise. Christians in the West today may be feeling an increased sense of social dislocation. But nothing in life can rob us of what Peter calls his very great and precious promises. Nothing in all creation can snatch us out of his hand. Following Jesus may well lead to suffering and loss. In fact, he tells us that it will. And we are certainly living through such times just now. But nothing of eternal value can be lost because it is promised and guaranteed by Jesus. The letter of Hebrews was also written to Christians who were going through tough times, times of severe persecution with many thousands being killed. One of the key messages of Hebrews to them 
is that uh, that situation is found in chapter 12. Having just listed the, in the previous chapter the stories of past saints who endured suffering and hardship but remained faithful, the writer then says, Therefore, since we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, let us throw off everything that hinders and the sin that so easily entangles, and let us run with perseverance the race marked out for us, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the pioneer and perfecter of faith. For the joy that was set before him, he endured the cross, scorning its shame, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Consider him, who endured such opposition from sinners, so that you will not grow weary and lose heart. Notice that the way not to lose heart is to consider Jesus. It is to fix your eyes on Jesus, to look to him, and in doing so you find not only strength for the day, but comfort and encouragement and the resources that you need to faithfully follow him in tough times such as these. The second thing these opening chapters tell us is that when it feels like we are being ground down in the troubles of life, we need to know and can know that Jesus knows what we're going through. That he's not looking the other way. We need to know that even if our difficulties are not resolved as or when we would like them to be, that we are not on our own and that Jesus is walking with us each step of the way. As Ecclesiastes 4, 9 and 10 says, two are better than one, for if one falls down, the other can help them up. The first thing that John saw in his vision in chapter 1 was seven gold lampstands or candlesticks. And then he saw Jesus walking among them. And it's that same vision that opens the messages to the churches. The seven golden lampstands, we are told, are the seven churches. And notice that Jesus is among them. He's not above them looking down. He's not outside of them looking in, but he is among them. Jesus did not leave his church at his ascension, and nor does he exercise his authority by remote control. He is here, present among his people, and he knows what they are going through. Although each one of these churches was in a slightly different situation, Jesus begins his message to them in exactly the same way, with the same words. And it's something I've only really noticed recently about Revelation. Each message to the churches begins with the words, I know. For people who were wondering if Jesus knew what was going on and what they were going through, this would have been a very powerful statement. I know. The content of each message makes it clear that Jesus knows exactly what is happening um, in, in the churches and to the churches. He knows what's happening in the city around them. He knows their situation even better than they know it themselves. He knows what's keeping his followers awake at night. He knows the pressure they're under. He knows the true condition of their hearts, the reality of their devotion, regardless of the front that they put on. He knows what their struggles are. In the same way, Christ is present amongst his people today. 
He knows our fears and anxieties, our struggles and our pain. He knows what is going on in our lives, every detail. He knows every conversation. He's read every email. Uh, he's heard every phone call, every WhatsApp message, every tweet. Nothing escapes his gaze. Jesus knows. He lives and moves among his churches and is doing so among us right now. Like the high priest in the temple tending to the lampstands to ensure they keep burning, Jesus walks among us, tending to us so that his light may continue to shine in and through us to the world. He strengthens, he encourages, he equips his people and as these messages to the churches show, he also responds in judgment on his churches if they will not repent of their sin. Jesus knows exactly what we need better than we know ourselves and nothing helps us more than his presence with us. I'm sure that many of us will know from personal experience the value, strength and encouragement that comes from knowing. When, when you're going through tough times, the others know what you're going through. They're walking that journey with you and supporting you through those times, especially in prayer. I've often heard people say that all we can do is pray, and sometimes that's true, but that can sound a little bit fatalistic, as though we need to pray now because, well, we've tried everything else and nothing else has worked. More and more I am learning that the first thing we should do is pray, and sometimes the best thing we can do is pray. According to Philippians 4, 6 to 7, it's when we bring our fears and anxieties to God in prayer that we are able to experience his peace in the midst of them. For God is found by those who seek him and in his presence there is peace. Make no mistake, prayer does not guarantee a change in our circumstances, but it brings about a change in us as we find the resources in Christ to deal with the circumstances that we are in. We're living in tough times. This pandemic is not over yet, not by a long shot. We may well feel discouraged and overwhelmed by events that are outside of our control and perhaps that's really the nub of the problem. We like to feel that we are in control of our lives but you know stuff happens in lives that force in our lives that forcefully reminds us that we are not in control and that the, of the truth that we actually we never were in control of our lives. And so the counsel of scripture especially in Revelation is look to Jesus. He is the Lord of history. He is the one who's in control. He is eternally powerful and gloriously majestic and he loves you beyond measure and he knows exactly what you're going through and he is walking that road with you. His promises are great and eternally secure. As Paul famously wrote in Romans 8, nothing in all creation, past, present or future, will ever be able to separate us from God's love for us in Christ Jesus. So 
let's look to Jesus. Let's change our perspective. Look up, fix our eyes on Jesus. He will see us through. May God bless you in the week ahead.